0: Our Father, we thank you for another day, another Lord's Day, another week to, to pause from the events of life and, and uh, focus on you, fellowship as your people here in your church. We pray, Lord, for your blessings on us today. We pray, Lord, that you would grow us in grace, that we might know you and serve you and uh, honor you in, in all that we do. We pray these things then in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, well last time um, we started looking some at the different genres in uh, in the scriptures. And we have all kinds of genres uh, in uh, everyday life. The different things that we read, we have a Twitter genre, we have a text genre, we have a comics genre, you know, and on and on it goes. And each one, um, you write differently. Um, what is it, 140 characters for Twitter or something like that, and and text, you tend to abbreviate things and, and so forth. And this is, in some ways, its own language, its own way of communication. And so, uh, simply you're talking about different kinds of literature. And in the scriptures, you see that. And I listed, uh, these here, narrative, law, poetry, proverbs, parable, pericope, thistle, prophecy, apocalyptic. A lot of P's in there. And uh, these are how we, we typically divide them uh, in, in the scriptures. And we certainly can look at these individually. We also will see that there's a lot of mixture. And so uh, it, it's, it's very rare that a, a book is all of one. Um, maybe the closest we get is some of the short letters like, say, 3 John or something. But uh, but most of them have a mixture of these different genres in one way or another. And so we started then by looking at narrative briefly. And uh, simply this is uh, about history, stories of actual events. And as I emphasize, we're talking about true history here. Um, history is, um, you might say determined by the person writing it, and uh, to some degree that's inevitable, and so there's going to be bias, there's going to be a limitation, a certain view of things, you can't include everything in history, Um, but in terms of our day, much of our history is tried, they try to understand it without God, and so because of that, we're seeing a lot of them going back and rewriting history without God. So like the 1619 Project, I think I mentioned last week, that's all about trying to understand the establishment of America in the Jamestown Colony without God as part of it. Or if they speak of God, it's in a very demeaning kind of way. It was all economic. It was all trying to uh, conquer the Indians and so forth. And, yeah, there was an economic factor. And, yeah, they didn't treat the Indians very well. But there was a whole lot more than that. And um, And so when we're thinking about history true history, one, must be accurate because it reflects what God has done. We can't just rewrite it because then we're we're rewriting God's providence. And secondly, it must be God-centered. And um, um, when it comes to the scriptures, we have the assurance that it is true, that it is accurate, and that it is uh, centered on the Lord. So as for characteristics of narrative, um, repetition is used frequently, and this is to help with memory and to give some emphasis. You often find a key verse in the narrative. Uh, Maybe it's the first verse of the chapter or the section. Sometimes it's the middle one. Sometimes it's the end. Sometimes you don't have one, uh, but typically you're going to have a key verse. And then, of course, you need to look for the lesson main lesson uh, found in that. What is the theological lesson that we find um, in that particular section? And and so your repeated words are going to help you to know what that is. If you know a word is used five times in the section or a name of God is used seven times in a section, then you know that's going to help direct you to what the lesson is. If you see a key verse, and we looked at, uh, say for example, 2 Samuel 11, The very end of that story of David and Bathsheba, that's our key lesson. And no matter what else we learn in the chapter, that's the main point. And so those things uh, help you. Um, Let's turn a moment to Genesis chapter 39. morning, Paul. Good to see you all today. Genesis chapter 39. um, Here's an example of repeated ideas. Not just a word, but repeated things here. So in in Genesis 39, we're not going to read through all this, but this of course is when Joseph was taken to Egypt and sold to Potiphar and then uh, the whole situation with Potiphar's wife and being thrown in prison and so forth. But uh, let me highlight for you the, the repetition. In verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he was successful. Verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him. The Lord made all he did prosper in his hand. In um, verse 5, uh, so it was, in time he made him overseer of all his house and all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in the house and in the field. Um, And then, you have the whole situation with Potiphar's wife. So here then at the end, uh, verse 21, But the Lord was with Joseph, this is now in the prison, and showed him mercy. And then in verse 23, The keeper of the prison did not look into anything that was under Joseph's authority, because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. So you have some identical language, you have some very similar language as you look at these different verses but again it's just common in narrative you're going to see repetition you're going to see things repeated um, if we point to one verse is the key verse maybe we point to the last verse maybe we point to verse two um, but again it all works together so the main thing here is when we're when we're handling narrative genre look for repetition look for a key verse or a key idea and this one is very clear because of of the repetition here in these handful of ways. And so now we can say that's the theological lesson of the passage. And the theological lesson clearly is no matter what happens, even if we are sold into slavery or thrown into prison or someone accuses us wrongfully, the Lord is with us. And if we serve him, he will prosper us Maybe it's while we're in prison. Maybe it's while we're a slave. But he will prosper us. And um, in this case, it is very likely that Joseph should have died based on what Potiphar's wife accused him of doing. But he doesn't. Potiphar doesn't have him put to death. seems to be an indication that he didn't believe his wife (laughs) and uh, maybe believed Joseph more than her, or at least enough to prevent his death and uh, certainly God was with him to prevent that from happening and and so anyway just as another example we looked at Genesis 12 last week of, of these things to help us determine what the theological lesson is uh, in a particular passage again with narrative sometimes it can be a little hard to see because sometimes it's, it just sounds too common sounds too easy. We, we think it should be more profound. And, um, and, and so when we run across passages like that, it is easy for us then to import various ideas that aren't necessarily what is being communicated in that passage. So what we um, uh, sometimes run across then is people who try to spiritualize the passage. Now, let's turn to Numbers chapter 33 here a moment, and um, I've made reference to this before just because you all have heard it, <laughs> <Anna> and Betsy, <laughs> good to see you all. So... <laughs> uh,
1: <yeah.
0: laughs> Maybe they'll stick around if we do. (laughs) All right. Um, One of the common things, because of the mundaneness of of some of these narrative passages, is we tend to spiritualize the text. Now, this is different than allegory, but it's. a similar idea, if you will, in a general sense. Um, and here in Numbers 33, we have the um, the summary of the the different legs of the journey that Israel had from Israel, or excuse me, from Egypt to Mount Sinai through the wilderness and eventually up uh, across from the Jordan. And so you have all these places mentioned, and um, seems rather mundane, doesn't it? seems rather kind of boring. Maybe those who like history and geography are interested in it or something, but how do we understand this? We know we can't skip over it because it's in God's Word. So so what is our point? Well, here's where it can be challenging, because the point isn't necessarily spelled out for us. Um, You um, don't really see a whole lot in here that would make it abundantly clear. There's not like really a theme verse. You don't really see um, a repeated word. Uh, you do see the idea of departing, and obviously that is, is repeated over and over and over again. Um, they departed, they moved, depending on your translation. Um, maybe you could say uh, there in verse 2, Moses wrote down the starting points of the journeys at the command of the Lord. Well, that certainly indicates to us that all of this was because of God's leading. Um, But again, it's kind of hard. What's the point here? Well, as you may remember, a number of years ago, this passage was preached to you when I was on vacation, and the point that was made here had to do with the gospel-centered approach to things, and this text was spiritualized and all about leading us to Christ and and to heaven and so on and so forth. And, okay, some of the points were, were fair enough. Um, but I think that the main point of the text is simply this. No matter where we go, God's leading us and guiding us. Okay. It seems like a rather basic point, but isn't it profound, too? Okay, Munson's are going to a new place. Okay. Kevin and Des now have started a new part of their lives you know we can speak of all kinds of things where we go from one place to another maybe we're literally moving maybe we're not but God is with us leading and guiding us every step of the way and doesn't that give us confidence doesn't that give us encouragement that's our point we don't need to spiritualize it and say well this points to Jesus and the cross specifically that's not what the text is about Maybe by extension, but certainly not directly. And so it is common for people to take narrative, especially passages like this that just aren't as clear as Genesis 39, and 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 they spiritualize it, and usually um, point to Christ in some way that is not really directly connected. Yes. Certainly, um, let's see, was that Elisha with Naaman? Trying, trying to remember the, the yeah. context, yeah. yeah. Right, right. Well, I think that's your yes, yes. I think that's the main point. Yeah, and yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, is who is God, and then how do we respond to Him? That would be, uh, I think, the two key themes there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, and added to that, they, they often thought of the gods as local, and so uh, that would add to what you're saying. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it seemed rather mundane, didn't it? <laughs> hey, I, he was expecting Elisha to. You know conjure up something whatever and you know zap them or whatever but uh just don't go wash in the river and uh so yeah the issue of of the true god and obedience to him even when it seems um every day yep, yep. well the other um <coughs> tendency here of course is allegory and this is taking the spiritualization, you might say, to another level. And um, this is taking the literal meaning and superimposing a spiritual meaning. And and I, I'm not intending to get into all the levels of allegory in the Catholic Church and all that sort of thing. But but what I'm simply trying to say is, when well, when it comes to narrative, this is such a temptation for people to use. And Um, start with the story itself and look at what the text is communicating to us. And the only time, really, that we should impose something um, over and above that is when we see the text doing it for us. So, for example, um, remember the story, of course, of Hagar and Sarah. And the main point in Genesis is... um, Abraham does not trust in the Lord. He takes Hagar as his concubine. And so then you have Ishmael and and that whole mess. And God is going to give the promise to Abraham and Sarah and then Isaac and so forth. Well, Paul allegorizes the text in Galatians chapter 4. And he connects it to the Jerusalem above and the Jerusalem below and those kind of things that's a proper allegory because the text is leading us in that direction. And um, um, we're not going to get that from Genesis, though. And so when we're going through Genesis, we've got to focus on what Moses is communicating to us in those passages there in Genesis. And then, by extension maybe, we can connect it to Galatians 4 and bring in what Paul says. But that's really not the point uh, in in many ways in, in Genesis. Now broadly it is because you have the way of faith and you have the way of works. And, and so in that sense we can connect it. But, uh, um, but anyway, in terms of the allegory itself, um, it's let the text drive you. We can say the same thing about typology. Some people find types and shadows all over the scriptures. And um, we, we should be careful to limit it to what the scripture itself says. So, anyway. Uh, again, not wanting to develop that too much, but uh, but to bring it up. Let's uh, turn here a moment then to Judges chapter 9. And just give one more example here of, of trying to take some narrative... And understand the point. In Judges chapter nine, you recall this is um, the story of Abimelech, uh, the son of Gideon, and how he goes to Shechem and basically convinces everybody to to set him up as a kind of king. And uh, then he goes and he kills his family and and so forth, so that he can rule in this way. Um, and there's all this reference to Baal. You might remember when I preached through this that Yahweh's not mentioned here in the chapter. But Baal is mentioned over and over and over and over again. I don't remember the exact number here, but uh, it's uh, if I remember correctly, it's like 17 times or something to that effect. But anyway, it's a whole bunch, and Yahweh is, is not. Um, in the midst of all this, then Jotham is raised up. And uh, we see... Uh, his words there in verses uh, 7 to 15 and uh, you might remember in verse 16 we have the key terms there truth and sincerity is how the New King James says it and uh, that takes us back to the end of Joshua and the covenant made there in Joshua 24 and um, anyway um, without belaboring the point here Um, It is easy for us then to take a narrative story like this and say, oh, what we should learn here is that we should not go and kill our family. Well, that's true as far as it goes, but uh, there's a whole lot more to the story than that idea. Um, What we have here is the desire of people in Israel to establish a human king. They ask Gideon, he said no. They ask his son, more or less, and he says, well, sure. seems like he's initiating here too. But they're wanting a human king. And as I've said, Saul is in many ways not really the first king in Israel. It's Abimelech. Now, okay, maybe it's not quite so official, it's not quite so comprehensive, but it's definitely that idea. And so, as we look at Jotham's words and we look at how uh, the author of Judges presents things here in the chapter, the the main ideas that impress themselves upon us are these. That Israel has rejected Yahweh for Baal. Okay, that you can see just simply by looking at how many times Yahweh is mentioned how many times Baal is mentioned. Okay, and so you have Jerob Baal, the name there. And then you may also remember that the uh, the language of the leaders of, of Shechem, or the men of Shechem, like for verse 6, for example, that's literally Baal for the term men, is how the New King James has translated it. And so as you look at those things, it helps you to see, well, here are repeated words for memory, yes, but in particular for emphasis, which gives us the theological lesson. They have rejected Yahweh and replaced him with Baal. Also, you see the language there of Baal-berith. Um, let's see, where was that? Verse 4, for example. baal bereath. Obviously, you see the mention of Baal, but Bereath is the word covenant. And so it's the covenant with Baal. They have rejected the covenant with Yahweh and replaced it with a covenant with Baal. There's one of your key points. Thirdly, you remember that Shechem was a city of refuge. Well, there wasn't much refuge in Shechem, was there? Especially as you look later in the chapter. Remember they go running out, the companies, and they're killing each other, and so on and so forth. There's not much refuge in Shechem. They have been set apart as one of these cities, one of the six cities, to find refuge. Even when you have killed someone, and so on and so forth. But they've rejected their role as a city of refuge for something else, for a murderer to be king. And then the fourth key point is that Shechem was a Levitical city, one of the 48 cities that was a Levitical city. And instead of the Levites teaching the people around them the things of Yahweh and the covenant of grace, they were teaching them the things of Baal and the covenant with Baal. They had rejected their role to teach the things of God for pluralism. Because, again, as I had mentioned when I preached through this, they don't reject Yahweh completely. They just combine Yahweh and Baal. And that's what typically happens. Is we, we syncretize. And um, so anyway, as, as you go through a passage like this, these things start to impress themselves on you as you read it carefully. Now in this case... Knowing the original language is going to help some of that, especially with the term pale being used over and over again. Um, <clears throat> but maybe I could say it this way. Don't read the text in just a cursory, superficial kind of way. The The surficial idea is, don't kill your family. <laughs> but it's a whole lot more rich than that. And uh, in many ways, it's... Um, The turning point in the book Uh, you remember Abimelech is not a judge never called a judge you have the judges prior to him the judges after him and he is sandwiched right in the middle because it's all about Israel wanting a human king And so there you can look what's the emphasis well not repetition but placement not just a key verse but a key chapter in the whole of the book so there's a, a lot of things to keep in mind, but at the same time, um, look for these, these uh, uh, basic things when you're reading narrative. And in the midst of this narrative, we have this fable from Jotham, so you have another genre there, but uh, again, it's um, uh, these basic things. All right, what, again, what I'm trying to do here is just to give you a few examples. To give us some some direction. Alright, comments or questions here about these things. All right. <clears throat> yes. you're not alone. Many people have had the same kind of experience. The details are different maybe, but, um, you know, it's just in my own life. I grew up um, in a pretty sound setting with my parents. And um, even going to East Main, entire church before that, we we got some decent teaching uh, for a mainline church. Uh, There was a lot to be desired, (laughs) What I felt like when I got to seminary is when I actually started learning things. <laughs> but I had learned so much before that. But it, it helped me to I kind of describe it as I grew up with a smorgasbord of Christian theology. And had some that was really sound. And some that was just not. <laughs> and, and, and at that point when I got to seminary I just saw how it was all fitting together. And I'm like Oh, well, that doesn't fit, I need to change that, <laughs> and, and so forth. Um, it's a process, um, a lifetime process. Um, so I'm also reminded as you speak of some things I've, I've said at different times that our goal and in, in what I'm trying to do and what I'm exhorting you to do is not merely to have our theological ducks lined up. It's not merely that we have the right answer. But the closer we are to what the text is actually teaching us, the more benefit we get from that. And like you're saying, some of the struggles you've had and so forth is in part because you didn't have as much as what the Scripture is actually saying. We had some, and there was blessing, but there was... Things that weren't there and that was harmful in some ways. Yeah, yeah, uh, yes, yeah, and things maybe not quite so um, extreme or bad or something like that 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 just aren't as much of what the Scripture's saying, and so it it limits our growth, it re- limits our maturation, and thus the blessings that, that we have. And I mean, it was even similar to what I was saying at the wedding yesterday. We you know, we can be married and we can have certain blessings, but if we're not seeking to follow God's plan for marriage, those blessings aren't as great as they could be. And as we obey God, there there are greater blessings. Um, and uh, you know I've been accused of just being someone who wants to have all the theology right. Well, not the way you have you, you're characterizing me, but I, I'm wanting to do it so that we can be blessed by it and honor God. So anyway... Well any other comments or questions? Yes, Dale. Well, that's part of the development of the movement. I think that... Right, yes. That, that's what we would call it now, the grace movement. or uh, Yeah, actually, it, there's, there are uh, direct connections to the whole lordship controversy back in the 80s. Remember, John MacArthur spoke quite well on that issue, writing books about it and so forth. So, so you have, Jesus is my savior but not my lord. Well, in our circles, we don't go that far. But it really started with the adoption movement. When I was in seminary, we need to focus on the fact that we are God's children. And, and that point is being ignored or not emphasized enough. And then this historical redemptive emphasis. We need to focus on that and not just abstract the, the, the teachings of the Scriptures. And especially, how does the Old Testament point to Christ? All good things in and of themselves. Yep, yep. But how are they defining it? And how are they practicing it? And so that then morphed into what we call this gospel-centered thing now. And so there, it's it's all connected. And um, yeah, I remember that. I, I remember people using that terminology, the historical redemptive uh, preaching or teaching or something like that. And it's like, well, yeah. But... My approach is a narrative approach that includes that, but is bigger than that. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah. And so when we're talking about narrative, um, what is the story of redemption is is very important, um, and um, but not to the point where we ignore what the text is actually saying in that particular passage. And that unfortunately has often happened. Yes, Susan? That's fine. Well, that term has been used for centuries. Calvin spoke that way and so forth. Um, And so it does kind of depend on what you're emphasizing. However, today the, the primary emphasis in our circles especially for gospel-centered or Christ-centered or, or grace-centered, um, what they mean is we must avoid the idea of works and legalism in every way possible. Fair enough. But in so doing, they then overlook, misinterpret, Um, or underinterpret passages and only focus on the redemptive aspect of it. We have this passage to show us that we need Jesus, and he's been perfect for us, and he's died for us, which is all true. But then they um, ignore or uh, under-emphasize the fact that, yes, but this is a passage written to a redeemed people telling us how to live to honor God. And if you do that, you're being a legalist. And so that's what they say. So all the four Reformed churches in our community are legalists because you know, we're, we're teaching you how to live as a child of God. And, and so to put it another way, it's the uh, Reformed version of the altar call every week. Every every passage and every sermon, and um, there's certainly a place for saying these things, but uh, it it comes to the point of spiritualizing things and ignoring some of the basic teachings in the passage itself. And so I mentioned Numbers 33 as one example of that. Yeah, Uh, Dale first, then Ken. And then more broadly, verses one to ten, yeah, and beyond, yep, yep. Kathy,
1: <laughs>
0: I have heard, yes. I have heard that by a number of people who've grown up in the altar call setting. I have not yet heard that very much in our reformed version of doing it. I think we're too close to being in it right now and relatively new that people are not weary of it yet. Some are, but not in a wide-scale kind of thing yet. I think where we're seeing it is uh, more and more license and um, um, less godliness among people manifesting itself in everyday living. I think that's where we are right now. We're seeing this message well we we need Jesus and so forth and not a message of here's how you then shall live. And so we're seeing more and more people, young people, um, they're, they're not living much different than the world. And that's even in our churches. And I talk about some very specific examples in our community of that, but I'm not going to do it. But it's happening. So to your question, I don't think we're there yet in a broader scale. It's those who are concerned about the movement that are speaking, (laughs) not those who are in it who accept it and now are saying, wait a second, there's something missing. It'll happen. Yeah. 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 It's nice to be told that in your Christian liberty you can do things that you... Your sinful nature wants to do especially when you're college students so <clears throat> well anyway i am uh obviously going to be away now for a little bit so um the Colburn's will be here next sunday for sunday school and then i understand dale's gonna take over for a section and um and then when he's done I don't know what's happening, if I'm going to return, or someone else in the meantime, but at some point, I'm going to pick up with this, (laughs) and uh, do more with it, so. (laughs) All right, well, let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for (laughs) your word, and uh, we are thankful, Lord, that you have given it and preserved it and given us your spirit to understand it. We thank you, Lord, that for so many things, it's, it's plain. Um, but Lord, we do ask that you would help us to be students of the word and to uh, learn skills, to interpret it well, that we might rightly divide your word, not just to say that we're right, but to honor you and to be blessed by it. And so, Lord, we pray for your your uh, strength and mercies in this way. We pray now as we uh, turn to worship you uh, corporately, uh, strengthen us for it, for it Lord. And uh, we pray that you would uh, grow us in grace and that your name would be magnified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.